so much. I'm so happy to be here at Belmont. I'm very grateful to the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I want to thank Liani. I want to thank the organizing committee for hosting me. I want to thank all of you for coming out. Thank you for taking time to be with me today. I'm very, very grateful. It's my first time in Nashville. What a, an amazing city. What a great city. You are very, very fortunate to live here. It's beautiful. It's going places. It's got a lot on the ball. This is a, a wonderful place. And I'm really happy to be here at Belmont. This is amazing. 8,000 students. This is a, this is, this is a really, this is a, a college that's on the move. So I'm really happy to be here and I'm really grateful that you all are hosting me as well and, and doing this in partnership with the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thank you. So, um, so I'm here because I wrote this book called The American Imperative. I've been in Washington for 21 years. I lived in Argentina for a long time. My wife is from Argentina. I, I speak Spanish. I lived in Spain as well. Uh, I work for the American government. I work for the foreign aid arm of the US government. I worked for the World Bank Group for a while. I worked in banking in another life. I worked at Citibank and I worked at a, what's now Deutsche Bank on Wall Street. And I've been at this think tank for 13 years and have done a variety of different things and, and seen lots of things. And so I wrote this book, this is sort of a distillation of all of my, my research and efforts over the last 13 years. I, um, uh, so I wrote this book because we're in a new age. We're not in the post-Cold War age, which was an age that I grew up in from sort of like 1990 to about 2015. I'm 51. Uh, it's it's really since maybe since like 2015 and people will debate when, when that happened. We're sort of in the post-post-Cold War age. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't really kind of get at it. What we're in, unfortunately, is we're in a, an age of great power competition. And some people have argued we're in a second Cold War. I'm, I've been kind of avoiding that term. I think it's a little, it, it feels a little too, too final. So, but I think some people will disagree with me and say, no, we're in a second Cold War. But I do think that this age does mimic some of the things of the first Cold War. But um, this age is going to be with competition with the Chinese Communist Party. And we're going to be in competition with uh, Vladimir Putin's regime in Russia. We, are not in, we do not have a problem with the Chinese people. And, I will, and I've said this many, many times, but I'm going to say it here more controversially. I think some people will say, we do not have a problem with the Russian people either. And we need to engage the Chinese people and we need to engage the Russian people. We need to find ways to do that. I'm not gonna be able to spend a lot of time on that topic today, but I think it's something important that we all need to think about. So if you have Russian students, make them feel welcome here. If we have Chinese students, make them feel welcome here. So that's one of your jobs if you're students or your university is we should have Chinese students, we should have Russian students, we should make them feel welcome. It's an important part of our citizen diplomacy and it's an important part of how we engage with the world. So you guys have a role to play here at Belmont and, and the other many fine universities here in Nashville. Okay. This age of great power competition is going to play out not in the United States largely. It's not going to play out in Russia. It's not going to play out in China. It's not going to play out in Europe. It's going to play out in what might be described as the global south. It's going to play out in developing countries. It's going to play out in Africa. It's going to play out in Latin America. It's going to play out in South Asia, Southeast Asia, the Pacific Island states, Central Asia, places like Ukraine and Moldova. So for as a shorthand, let's just say it's the global south. I would argue 
and we should hope that most of it is not going to be a military competition. I am for a strong U.S. military. I'm for strong burden sharing among our allies on military. We need countries in NATO, for example, to spend 2% of their GNP on defense. Most NATO countries, I think nine of the, whatever it is, 28 or whatever they are, and Pat can tell me how many members are in NATO, but 30, nine of the 30 spend 2%. So needs improvement, okay? But most of this competition is not gonna be military. It's gonna be about over competition over vaccines. It's gonna be about competition over values. It's gonna be competition over the kinds of technologies people use. It's gonna be about infrastructure. Many of you probably heard something called belt and road, right? That's, that's part of it. It's gonna be about, and I'm hoping to have a conversation with Amy about this, it's gonna be in the, unfortunately, for what it's worth, there's gonna be great power competition has come to the multilateral system. And we, and I know Amy knows a lot about this and I'm hoping we'll, we'll have a little bit of a conversation about the multilateral system. So I think we need a strategy for the next 30 to 40 years in the non-military realm of how we engage with the world. Now, so some of that's about inter what might be called international development and foreign aid, so things you've heard of. And some of it are things that are kind of international development adjacent, to use kind of the idiom of today, or things that are certain kinds of diplomacy. So some of it's about having foreign students study in the United States. So I don't know how many students here at Belmont are from other countries, but that's, especially from developing countries, that's really important. That's actually really, really important. Because what we want is for those folks to go back, they want, we want them to study at Belmont, then we want them to go to pack, back to Pakistan and become finance minister. We want the finance minister of Pakistan to have Boston on the speed dial, not Beijing on the speed dial. The way that happens is that they study in Nashville, they get to know the United States, they learn English, they make connections with professors and other classmates, they're gonna pick up the phone and call the United States of America. They're not gonna call Beijing. That's what we should want, right? So that's a long-term play for us. So we need to think about that. So it's things like that. It's also things like how leadership races in the multilateral system. So we need to do a top to, my message is, we need to do top to bottom review of how we engage with the developing world. We need, and so one of the things I want you to take away is we need a positive, forward-looking agenda that speaks to the hopes and aspirations of our partners and our potential partners, because China's got one of those. It's called the Belt and Road Initiative. What I hate about the Belt and Road Initiative is it's a really good idea. It's an awesome idea. The problem is it's their idea, not our idea. And so it's very, it speaks to people's hopes and aspirations. And my other message is you can't fight something with nothing. We can't go around the world saying to people, don't take the Chinese vaccine. Don't take the Huawei telecom stuff. That's a, you, many of you probably heard of Huawei. Don't take the Huawei telecom stuff. Um, don't take the Belt and Road money. Don't let them build your bridge or airport. If we're saying to them, well, we're not gonna be able to help support you with your bridge or airport, right? Then you can't fight something with nothing. So we need to be able to have a positive forward-looking agenda that speaks to the hopes and aspirations of our friends and potential friends. Okay, so let me tell two brief examples and then maybe I can have a conversation with Amy. So I think, so those are my messages. We need, we're in a new age. 
So the other thing I want you to leave you with is, is China, in particular, the Chinese Communist Party is a near-peer competitor. That's like a technical term we use in like the national security community. So China is a, so when I say China, I'm talking about the Chinese Communist Party. I'm not talking about all the Chinese people. I'm talking about like the Chinese regime, okay? So um, China is a near-peer security competitor. And my argument is they're a near-peer competitor in sort of these non-military forms of power and influence that really matter. So let me tell you, to give you two examples of like, okay, this, you know, because a lot of people in Washington will say, well, this, this soft power stuff, that's kind of hippie. That's kind of hippy-dippy. It's kind of flaky. It's not a serious thing. I think, I'll, I'll give you two examples, and then I think we'll have, I'll, we can have a conversation, Amy. Okay. So the first is, and I'm sorry, several of you have had, had to hear, go sit through this. I'm so, sorry, Jim, and sorry, Carl, and several of you have had to hear this. But, um, so I, I use the example of COVID and the vaccines because I think it, it, everyone kind of gets it. So um, during COVID, I was really happy to get the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. But there weren't enough vaccines for Pfizer and, COVID, for Pfizer and Moderna to go, in the United States there were, right? We had to wait, maybe like there was like a kind of like a four week period. But if you wanted to get a vaccine in the Dominican Republic or Guatemala or in Africa, we said, we're gonna get to you guys, give us six to 12 months. So there was sort of this void where the access to the really good vaccines wasn't available. So China and Russia created vaccines. You've heard of them like Sinovac. Who's heard of Sinovac? A lot of people heard of Sinovac. Who's heard of Sputnik? Heard of Sputnik, right? Sputnik, okay. So the Dominican Republic, before COVID, made two commitments to the US government. One was, we, the Dominican Republic, are not gonna include Huawei in the Dominican Republic's telecom system for a whole bunch of reasons that have to do with national security issues. The other thing was that the Dominican Republic was considering re-recognizing Taiwan instead of mainland China. There's a whole conversation about, okay, there's a few countries that recognize Taiwan and it's important so that they can have some kind of, that it's still kind of a, a sort of a thing, right? And so, so COVID happens, we, in the United States, say to the Dominican Republic, hang in there, we'll be there in about 12 months and we'll get you the good stuff in about 12 months. Have you guys been to TGI Fridays, you know, and you get that buzzer when they say your table's ready? So we gave them one of those buzzers and said, we'll buzz you when the vaccines are ready, right? You get, you know what I'm talking about. That's basically what we told them. Like we used a whole bunch of fancy public health terms to basically say, here's the TGI Fridays buzzer and we'll buzz you when it's ready. But that's basically what the deal was. So China shows up with a plane full of Sinovac and says, look, we've got this plane full here of vaccines. But we've heard a rumor. You're gonna recognize Taiwan. Like we, we're, not, we're not giving Sinovac vaccines to people who recognize Taiwan. You wouldn't wanna do that, would you? No, 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 we're not gonna do that. They also said, you know, we've got this really excellent technology company. It's called Huawei. We think you ought to consider including Huawei in your telecom system, because we've heard you're not gonna include it in your telecom system. No, 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 we'll include it in our telecom system. Right, I think you get the idea. So there's lots of terms in the public health world called like vaccine diplomacy. This is called highly weaponized 
vaccine diplomacy, right? I think you get it, right? So this is a form of soft power, but this is a pretty important form of influence, right? Right, okay, so that's the first example. So the second example, and I think it'll lead into a conversation with Amy, who knows a lot about the multilateral system. So the multilateral system consists of, if you think of like there's that building in New York and there's that famous photo of the Security Council and it's a big tall building and Turtle, it's called Turtle Bay, it's a part of Manhattan. But really the multilateral system consists of about 130 to about 200 multilateral, depending on how you slice it and dice it, there's about 130 to 200 multilateral organizations. We, we in the United States are members of about 130, meaning we give them diplomatic immunity and stuff like that, okay. So I'd say most of them, of the 130, I'd say about 100 were built after World War II, and we purposely set them up. We purposely said there's a reason we need to stand up X or Y organization, and we set them up for a reason. These institutions are very little understood. They're, they're important, they're important in ten they mean something to folks in Tennessee, and they mean something for folks in Florida, they mean something for folks in New York, and they mean uh, something for folks all over the world. But they're like little understood. Like people have heard of the United Nations, they don't really kind of know what it does. They probably heard, who's heard of the World Bank? You heard of the World Bank? Can I see hands? Who's there? Okay, that's a lot of people. Who's heard of the IMF? IMF, okay. How about the Asian Development Bank? Okay, smaller, right? How about the Euro European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, EBRD? Okay, so two hands. Right, I think you get the idea. FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization. Okay, five, right, okay. Right, and Amy knows a lot about it. Who's heard of the WHO, World Health Organization? Everyone's heard of that, right? Okay, right. <laughs> Maybe not for the right reasons. We can have a separate conversation about that. Okay, there's 130 of these things. So some of these organizations set global standards. So what do I mean by that? Okay, well like, like standards for like a like an electric plug, right? When you think about standards, think think about like elect that that plug, that's a standard, right? But like there's like a plug for like internet protocols or other kinds of standards. That that stuff matters. It matters for commerce. It matters for national security. It, ma it has all sorts of meaning. And it's important. We my view is I'd like the West, led by the United States, to be a standard maker, not a standard. Taker. So these multilateral organizations set standards. They also keep lots of super sensitive information and, or set global rules. So like there's an organization that says, okay, if you're flying in the sky, is that American territory or is that Canadian territory? It's called, don't ask me what the heck it stands for, but it's called the ICAO. Who's heard of the ICAO? Okay, right? So they like set lines in the sky for like where you, you can fly and who's, whose territory is that. So at one point, um, there was some funny, funny business where I think the Chinese ran it. There was someone from China, I think, ran it and they got rid, they like erased the line for Taiwan and like shrank the space, like things like that. Or when the woman from Hong Kong became the head of the WHO, they kicked the Taiwanese representative out, right? Like crap like that, right? So. So you have institutions that set standards. They set like really obscure, eye-glazingly boring, but really important rules like, you know, where's the line in the sky for where the planes can go? Then you have things, they also have a lot of money, right? So the IMF 
is like if you have a financial crisis in, a, in Africa, you call the IMF. If you want to build a road, you call the World Bank or you call the African Development Bank or the Asian Development Bank. So they have money, they set rules, and they have really sensitive and important information. Okay. So we in the United States, I think for a whole bunch of reasons, are like, well, why do we have to be a member of these things? Sometimes they seem kind of, we see these as kind of trivial or kind of silly or there's, you know, or the newspaper coverage of them are seen as sort of, I don't know, they're, they're generally, there are problems with these organizations, but they're overall, like we invented them and there's a reason they exist. And for the most part, these are, now they don't mean that they, we should, we should surrender American sovereignty to these institutions, but we built these things and we should, what I would describe it as, we should ride herd, right? Like in the cowboy concept, we should ride herd on the multilateral institutions, if I can put it that way. So they don't like it when I say that to the multilateral institutions, but for this audience, we need to ride herd on the multilateral institutions, okay? So why am I telling you all this? Well, what I would argue is that great power competition has come to the multilateral system. China is putting forward, it has money. They can pay their dues. They can pay the condo fees of joining these things. They also have really good, capable people. They have lots of young people who are learning English and French, which are kind of the operative languages. They're studying abroad. And then they're sending sort of like a field team of talent to all these organizations and saying, okay, go. And now they're all members of the Chinese Communist Party if they're sent to these places and say, we want you to, you know, go and kind of grow up in the, in the system. And so what you now have after 25 years of this is we now have like a AAA and, and Major League Baseball team caliber talent in the, of Chinese Communist Party international diplomats who are able to run and win elections. So another thing you should know is that the United States has, I'm, I don't, I'm gonna guess, I'm guessing that the United States has physical embassies in about 190 countries. China has it in like 200. They now have more embassies than the US has today. So that, that matters because you can then send diplomats to go run campaigns, and I'm gonna explain in a second. So in, starting in 2019, there was an election for the Food and Agricultural Organization. Amy knows about this. So why, what the heck is the Food and Agricultural Organization? So this, I was like, what the heck is this thing? Well. If I, I don't have any, I had a granola bar earlier, but it said like, okay, like, if I have a, a grape, like if I was holding up a grape, how do I know this is a grape? Now you all know it's a grape. I know this seems like a stupid conversation, right? But there's like a, an organization that says this is a grape and this is a strawberry. Well, this sounds silly, but it, this matters for like things like international trade. So they're the decider if that's a grape or a strawberry. So like if you wanna trade grapes, or you want to trade strawberries, they look at the FAO and they classify what counts as a grape or a strawberry. Also, if this is a grape, there's also like pots of money for researching like grape productivity. I know this sounds silly, but there's like pots of money for this stuff. The other thing the FAO does is they also track in fairly good detail, and they also keep like libraries of DNA strains of like, this is the juiciest grape of all time. And so they've got like the DNA for like, what does that thing look like, right? And so if someone wanted to copy that, you know, that, that's interesting. But the other thing is they have, as, I, as far as I understand it, they've got really good records of like, okay, what's the most productive soil in Madagascar? 
Is it in East Overshoe County or is it in West Overshoe County? Like, why would that matter? Well, let's say you wanted to do a big land grab. Now, some of you who've heard of land grabs, land grabs in Africa, agriculture, okay. So China's going around to poor countries and saying, I'm gonna go buy like the size of Davidson County. I'm gonna go buy that side tract of land or like half the size of Tennessee and Zambia. And I'm gonna grow, I'm gonna like, like take over all the land, right? So if you wanted to look for the most productive land to go do a land grab, the FAO's got like the book and got the maps. So they put forward a top person to run that organization. So, you know, you could kind of run through the files if you're the CEO, you can hire people, you can hire, say, the peoplesliberationarmy.com cloud computing company to be the computer backbone of the FAO. You could hire Huawei to run all the telecom. I think you get the idea that there's a whole bunch of things that matter. So if you're the CEO, you get, you, you get to kind of make some personnel decisions and who you source from and other things. So because this thing is kind of obscure, like what the heck is the FAO? So the, the Chinese candidate, they had a Chinese candidate for the FAO who was like an agricultural economist, spoke English, spoke French. They ran a textbook campaign to run saying like, this is our candidate, we want you to support. So the Chinese candidate got 120 votes. The American back candidate and the person who was running our campaigns for this stuff was then later fired, um, got 12 votes. So, um, and for a bunch of, and so there's a really, really important article in foreign policy. Many of you read foreign policy? Who reads foreign policy? Okay. So there's an article about this election in 2019. I think it's outfoxed and outgunned is what I think it was titled. I'd say it's probably the most important article I've read in the last 10 years on foreign policy. And in, 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 just in general, like I, I read a lot, I'd say this is one of the most important things I've ever read. And it basically shows how the Chinese beat our, kicked our butts, and we t kicked our teeth in on this FAO election. This was a sobering moment. And so this was during the Trump administration. So can we agree that probably the nine people in the Trump administration were like not super into like the United Nations or the multilateral system? Can we agree with that? Okay. So even they were like, boy, having my teeth kicked in, this doesn't feel so great. Maybe, maybe we gotta think differently about this. So, they said, Dan, so they came, a friend of mine came to me in the administration and said, I'm gonna be the new ambassador to Geneva. This is in late 2019. I'm gonna say November 2019. He says, my most important mission is to stop, we just got our butts kicked a month ago at the FAO. This is a horrible, embarrassing, and maybe dangerous precedent. We wanna stop China from running, the, from running WIPO. Okay, so who knows what WIPO is here? Now, Liani knows and Amy knows. Who else knows? Maybe Dr. Belikova knows. Okay, but I think that's it. WIPO, right? Okay, so I, if you asked me five years ago and I do this for a living, I didn't know what it was. Okay, but I explained this to Liani earlier today. But, right, it's in my book. You have to read my book. So the students, if you're getting a free copy of the book for my friends at Parnassus, you gotta read the book and you'll learn about WIPO, but basically, it's the Major League Baseball Commission for patents. So think about that. So if you ran the Major League Baseball Commission for patents, you would get all the patents from all over the world, and they'd be sitting in a big cloud computing file, 
in sort of in Geneva, but who knows where it sits, right? And let's say you hired, instead of hiring Amazon cloud computing, you hired a Chinese compute cloud computing company. And let's say you wanted to plug all the patent and trade offices in Australia and Denmark and Norway and the United States. You wanted to plug them in via some kind of special telecom link, you might hire Huawei to do that. I think you get the idea, right? So it takes about two minutes to explain what the heck is WIPO, why the heck it matters. And so the, they were like, the Trump administration came to me and said like, we need help stopping them. I said, well, is there like a WIPO for dummies? Because I didn't even know what the heck this thing was. So there wasn't a WIPO for dummies. So I spent a lot of time with a young, like a Belmont University level student. So she and I worked together for a week and we put together a WIPO for dummies. Who's running? Who's had the job? Uh, what's the process for the election? What's the timeline? What the heck is this thing? I wrote a couple of op-eds in The Hill, which is thehill.com, explaining this to kind of a Washington policymaking committee what the heck this was. I convened a couple of meetings with the White House and with Trump administration diplomats and business leaders to say like, okay, here's the list of the candidates. Who are we gonna support other than China to try and crystallize a candidate around that? We were able to, so I, had a, I played a small role in stopping that, but we, they, I got religion about the multilateral system. So I think maybe, Amy, why don't I stop there and maybe, I'll, maybe we can have a conversation. Thank you so much. Um, I have to say, when I was working on my dissertation, I spent a lot of time explaining to people what the World Bank Food and Agriculture Organization and World Health Organization were. Did I do a good job on the you grape and strawberry? Great job. Okay, thank you. Um, but also, I lived in um, married student housing when I was at Ohio State, and whenever I talked about those organizations to folks from Africa, from China, from Latin America, they knew exactly what they were. Oh yeah. They knew how important they were not only to their country's future but to the world. Um, and I often think we could do a better job um, in the United States. But you're right, there's a jungle of acronyms. There are a lot of organizations that make up that multilateral system. Um, and you did a great job in your book of laying out some of the things the United States has already done. Um, you provided an example. But also some things we could do in the future to either maintain or reassert our international leadership. Can you provide some specific examples of how we might do that, especially through soft power? Okay, so I think um, one is I'm a big believer in making sure that we have enough international students studying in the US. So I think we ought to be more intentional about identifying students, especially in places like Africa, maybe Central Asia, maybe Southeast Asia and the Pacific Island states in particular to bring more of those folks to study to the United States. So I think we could be, you know, I think the world has changed from 60 years ago when we first used to do this, but I think that's one thing in particular I think we ought to be doing a little bit more intentionally and in identifying, we ought to at least 10,000 more. We ought, to, we ought to invest monies to get another 10,000 foreign students here every year. I think it's a good, long term, it's one of the better investments we can do. Um, I think that um, we are going to need some kind of a special agenda for the Americas, for the Western Hemisphere. I think we, I think President Biden's heart's in the right place, but I think we're very distracted right now. And I think that we, um, the, much of the region sees this as kind of ignoring Latin America and 
the Western Hemisphere and the Caribbean. And so I think we, uh, we have historically re-engaged, we have an ADD relationship with the Western Hemisphere. We only engage, I think, when there's a perceived outside threat. If you look at what FDR did with the good neighbor policy, I think it was a reaction to kind of Nazism in the region. If you look at the Alliance for Progress under President Kennedy, I think it was a response to the Castro Revolution and sort of the creeping communism as part of the Cold War, a Cold War calculus. I think if you look at the Caribbean Basin Initiative under the Reagan administration, it was a response to the Grenada and sort of you know, challenges in the larger Caribbean Basin, including Central America. So I think we, like, if you look back 25 years ago, there were zero countries of the 33 countries in the Western Hemisphere where China was the number one trading partner. I think today, China is the number one trading partner in the Western Hemisphere for at least 10 or 15 countries. So um, we need to do something specifically and have a specific vision and agenda for the Americas that's sustained and believable. You know, we don't have that right now. Um, I would say that um, the other thing I'm particularly interested in and I think the Biden administration's put their finger on this, but I think we could be doing more, is in the area of fighting corruption. So I think that if you look at global surveys of developing countries, they will say that um, the number, one of one, two or three top voting issue for many countries and many societies is corruption. So the United States needs to be seen at the front of the parade on any corruption. So most global progress on corruption, I think, has required leadership by the United States. So there was something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the 1970s, but there's been a series of movements since then on global corruption. And so it's required US leadership to do that. Why should we care about global corruption? Corruption's bad, and corruption's like not good for, it's like not helpful for development and prosperity. But there's another reason. In this age of great power competition, the Chinese Communist Party really likes bribing people. Like it's part of their MO. So we want to make it harder for them to go around the world with suitcases of cash and bribe people. And so not only is it the right thing to do, but now it's something we want to make it harder for the bad guys to do. So I'm interested in that. But let me just suggest several other things. So um, I think. Uh, I have a real, I have like several kind of obsessions as a result of the last couple of years. So one is like, I don't want to spend a year of my life in my basement again, and I suspect none of you guys do either. So we need to do a better job as a society and also working with our partners on pandemic early warning. And I think Nashville is a place with great healthcare. And I think so Tennessee and Nashville have a role to play in pandemic early warning and also playing a role and uh, thinking about how we're gonna be able to make available the great vaccines that are available in the West, but also to all people, because ultimately, we're not gonna be safe until everybody's vaccinated and all over the world, right? So I think, so I think uh, Tennessee has a role to play in that, in fact, National has a role to play in that. So one is on these pandemics. The second is, you know, Nashville is a global hub of companies. There's 200 companies, Japanese companies here, and I don't know how many Korean companies are here, but they came here for a lot of reasons. One is the weather's awesome. You have five universities here at least. Everyone's nice, the food's great. You've got great music. Um, it's a very livable place. But all, and you also have like a, what's called an enabling environment, an attractive economic enabling environment. 
But as part of, you guys are part of global supply chain ecosystems. Really since COVID, many of those global supply chains are shifting. And that has some indirect impact here in, in Nashville. And so many companies used to only rely on China for certain things. After COVID, people are saying, mm, I don't know if that's such a good idea. So you hear all sorts of terms, like we need resilient supply chains, China plus one strategies, friend shoring, allied shoring, near shoring. Some of that stuff is maybe think tank talk. So people like me who sit in an ivory tower who come up with this stuff, I didn't come up with those terms, but, but some of it I think is real. So I think it has real, I think many of the, the firms that are here are thinking about where they're sourcing things and how they're sourcing things. And that's been kind of accelerated in the last couple of years, especially because of COVID. But no one wants to depend on one supplier, one source anymore. And the reason is, is I think, is because when the Chinese Communist Party said, I'm gonna cut off your pills, and I'm gonna cut off your ventilators, I was like, okay, that's grounds for divorce. Like, you can't say that. So, so I think that's another thing I think you need to think about is I think, so one is on, so I think we need to be doing more in the pandemic space. We need to be thinking about, I do think, I'm interested in using foreign aid and trade partnerships to use it as like, you know what WD-40 is? You know, like a lubricant? I wanna use it as like WD-40 to kind of shift stuff away from China, like to Vietnam or to Tennessee or Central America or Colombia. But I don't wanna, you know, so I'm interested in that. I think that's something we should be thinking about and using various forms of our influence to, to accelerate that or lubricate that. And then I think the other thing that I think we need to be, there's two other things I think we need to be thinking about. I don't think it's in the US interest. So Huawei, there are three companies. There's Huawei, ZTE, and Alipay are sort of three big Chinese firms that have a price competitive and quality competitive offer for certain forms of telecommunications stuff in like the developing world. So if you go to Panama or you go to Guatemala or you go to these other places, in many places in Africa, you'll see Huawei. And it's cheap and it's pretty reliable, sort of like the Honda Accord or the Chevrolet of telecom systems. The problem is every transaction, every phone call is being vacuumed up and sent to Beijing. So I don't think that's in their interest and it's not in our interest to have the global digital rails of the future controlled by the bad guys. So we need to figure out some coalition of a bunch of other companies. That's Qualcomm and Ericsson and Samsung. There's a whole, we're gonna have to like get our act, collective act together and there are people smarter than me that need to figure this out. So we need to use some money for this. We, we need to figure, but I think we need to, we do not want at the end of the day, the digital rails of the future controlled by Huawei in the, in the global south. That's come, that's our thing and it's for real and it's happening right now. So we need to think about how we use our soft power for that. My fourth thing, my other topic would be, um, so many people are concerned about climate change. So climate change means we're gonna need to shift, we're gonna need to do a lot of different things. One of those things is about shifting to sort of electric vehicles or renewable energy. All of those things require um, critical minerals. So for example, we're gonna have, at least given the technology constraints that we have, we're gonna to have to mine as much as 40 times the amount of lithium that we currently mine. It sounds like, why, why is he talking about this? Well, so decarbonization doesn't mean dematerialization. 
So if you're worried about climate and you're not learning to love mining and metals to the tips of your toes, it's sort of a baloney conversation. So you need to be prepared for that. And so the other problem though is, if we have a kind of a funny and not so wonderful dependence on Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and Iran and you know whoever else you know whoever else these kind of oil producing countries are right now for certain parts of the value chain of processing this stuff it's like super dirty and not not money maker 40% of that's held by China so I have a hard time believing we're going to like transfer our dependence on Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela, and whoever else, ba other baddies on oil, to transfer our dependence to China. So we need to like get a lot. So a lot of this is in the Western Hemisphere. Some of this is in Africa. Some of this is in Canada. Some of this is in Australia. But we're going to have to have an adult conversation about mining and metals processing because like it's not just doubling the production of mining and minerals. This is like quintupling or 10 times the amount. So when people say you should learn to code, I don't say that. I say you need to learn how to like, learn to love like, go to like the Colorado School of Mines and we need to like open up like, and so I've said, we spend about a billion dollars a year of our American foreign aid on agriculture, like food security, maybe you heard of the concept of food security and agriculture. I would argue that we're gonna spend that much five to seven years from now on mining and minerals stuff because we want to have the carbon transition. Mining and metals for the carbon transition. So if we're committed to the carbon transition, then we're going to have to learn to love mining and minerals in a deep way that we don't talk about. And when I've said this publicly, I've said this to former heads of AID, I had a conversation with them. I, I said, you guys, you got the memo on mining and minerals? They kind of laughed at me. They're like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. That's kind of silly. What are you talking about? We'll see, so I'm, I'm gonna come back in seven years to Belmont and we'll have that bet and see if I'm right. I think I'm right, so I'm gonna, if I'm wrong, maybe I'll, I don't know, I'll have to think about what, what, will, I, what will I do, like seven years from today if I'm wrong about that, I don't know. You, I'll, I'll buy you all a copy of my next book and give it to you, how's that? <laughs> okay, okay, so that went, I don't know. So how's that, that, that was a big question, so I gave you a long answer. Okay, I'll try and give you a shorter answer for the next one. So we have a room full of students. Mm -hmm. You have argued that we need to up our game on Americans who are prepared for yeah. and ready to serve in this army of yeah. multilateral organizations. Um, the students here already have a certain level of interest in preparation. Yeah, I mean, if they showed up on a, in a whatever it is at 6 p.m. on a yeah. on a Tuesday, you must be interested, right? So thanks for showing <laughs> up. Yeah. How do they go from Belmont to, to that. the World Intellectual Property Organization? The okay, organization? so the first thing I say is how many of you speak a second language? Like, well, not like order, cope, no ice, but like, you know, <laughs> like speak it really well, right? So the first thing I'd say is like, I would encourage all of you if you're at a university and you don't speak a second language, you need to leave the university speaking fluently and competently a second language. If you speak a second language, you should speak a third language. Yes, English is, and we should insist and work hard to ensure that it is the global lingua franca. I don't want Mandarin becoming the global lingua franca. We want English to be the global lingua franca, okay? There ain't gonna be anything else. People tried 150 years ago to create something called Esperanto. You can Google that. That didn't work. So we're it. 
So let's hold on to that. That's a good thing, okay? But just because English is the global lingua franca doesn't mean that Americans don't need to learn a second or a third language. So I strongly encourage you, your student, to learn a second or a third language. If you have the chance to study abroad, I encourage you to study abroad for a semester. Make a point of doing that. Third, I think you should use your, if you have summers, if you have three summers as an undergraduate, you should use all three summers and do internships. Yes, if you are working, work during the year and save up money and try and get paid internships, but try and do internships. The goal of your four-year studies is to get a job afterwards. And I hire lots of young people. I look at like several things. Are they like arrogant? That's the first thing. Are they kind of like easy to work with? So like, are you easy to work with? And so that's what the interview's about. Like you arrogant or easy to work with and organized, right? The second is you speak multiple languages. So like if you speak Portuguese, like that, you, I've told Liani this, like I'm super into Portuguese because I want to learn Portuguese. I'm very envious of people who speak Portuguese. I'm quite serious about this. So if you speak Portuguese, I want to talk to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, where did you learn Portuguese? Because like, like it's like on my bucket list of things. I know that sounds silly, but it's true. But if you like speak a second or third language, I'm interested in that. And then I look at like, okay, what was your GPA? So if you hide it, I know like maybe that that's probably not a good sign, right? Can we agree? Like, you know what I'm talking about, right? So, right? And then the fourth thing is, what most important, like, what did you do for, in your internships? So you should be very intentional about internships. You should be working with your professors, you should be working with the career office, you should network with the Tennessee World Affairs Council. These are all very connected people globally. You should be working with them, you should be talking to them. But you should, yes, I understand that you, many people have to work hard and, and like to work to get through school. Like I'm not trivializing that. You should work during the year, but you should invest your time, even if it's for six or eight weeks, you should do some meaningful internship to make yourself attractive to someone like me who can hire you. Okay, that's really, really important. So I'd start with that. Then I would say, um, if you want to do an international career, so if you're an American citizen, I'm in favor of Peace Corps, but that's not the only thing you can do. You could do a Fulbright. There's a series of these studies. Some can be like research things. I also think you should be open to, I choose to chair something called SID United States. If you're interested in international development, I chaired the professional association called SID US. S-I-D-U-S, like we changed it, it used to be SID Washington, so it's S-I-D, if you go to S-I-D-W.org, I think it now goes to S-I-D-U-S.org, they have a career fair, I think it's virtual and in person, and then it's like big international development consulting firms, big international development NGOs. So if you're young and you're willing to go to some difficult place, like if you speak French and willing to go to Francophone Africa, they're interested in you. If you speak Portuguese and willing to go to Lusophone Africa, they're interested in you. If you if you speak Spanish, okay, that's great. I speak Spanish. I wish I spoke a third language. But if you said you spoke Bahasan Indonesian, they'd be like, oh my gosh, like we want you to go to you know where you spoke Tagalog and we're willing to go to the Philippines. Like that's amazing, right? So. Uh, all that to say, I also think when you're young and single, you should consider, if you have an interest in an international career, if you can go abroad to a more challenging place, that's the time to do it. Like, I've got three kids now, one's 19, one's 17, and one's 13. So if they were like, hey, Dan, we want you to go on, a, leave your family and go live in a really challenging place, like, for two years, like, it's not going to work for me. 
So for right now, when you're kind of unattached and you've got like a less complicated life, you know, it may seem like if you're a young person, you have a complicated life. I know that may feel that way, but it gets more complicated. That's the, okay, but you should do it now, not like when you're 35. It'll get harder. So I would say that. So I don't know. Okay, let me tell you one one story about that. So Doreen Bogdan Martin. Who is Doreen? Do you know who Doreen Bogdan Martin is? This is like a this is like a trivia question for Pat's newsletter. So Doreen Bog, we need a thousand Doreen Bogdan Martins. Doreen Bogdan Martin is an engineer. She's a, an American. She, I think, I'm gonna make, the, I think this is correct. So she started her career, she's probably 57. She started her career at the Department of Commerce in like some technical office, like way in the bowels of the Commerce Department. And some enlightened boss, I think this is what happened, said, hey Doreen, you're an engineer. You know, there's this junior level opening at a thing called the ITU. Okay, who knows what the ITU is here? Okay, Amy and me, are we the only people who know what the heck the ITU is, right? Okay, like I said, like super obscure. They set the rules of the internet. They set the rules of cell phones. The International Telecommunications Union. It's been around since the 19th century, like 1885, for telegraphs and stuff, like Western Union. You know, you need to have like rule system. So they kind of, change with the times now that the internet <coughs> folks. Hey Doreen moved to Geneva. She had, so she I, either she learned French there, because you need in like some of these organizations you need to speak French. And in addition to English. So she learned French or she spoke French. And she stayed since she started in 1993. I'm old enough to remember 1993. Some of you don't remember 1993. Is that the name of an Alec Taylor Swift album? 1990, or is that 1989? I can't remember, 1989, right? <laughs> right, okay. I, I don't, yep. Sorry, I'm old, right, okay. So, so 1993, so she's been there for 30 years. So she was like started in some cube, you know what a cube is, right? Like in some little desk in 1993 and she worked her way up and worked her way up and worked her way up. And then the Trump administration was like, okay, so there's three top jobs at the ITU. You have to run for office. You have to run for election for the top, the number three job, the number two job, and the number one job. So they were like, okay, well there's this number one, so maybe we wanna have someone for the number one job someday. So, there was like, well, there's this woman who's in the bowels of the ITU and she speaks French and everyone likes her and she's, she kind of gets it and she's smart and she's an engineer and she knows the organization. So the Trump administration said, that's awesome. We'll run her for office. And what that means is like you go around and you have diplomats say, hey, we've got this awesome candidate and we ought to elect her. It's like run, it's running for office. It's just with diplomats, right? And so she won the number three slot. So then the Biden administration came in and said, oh my gosh, we've got this amazing American. She's an amazing technical person. She speaks French, everyone likes her, and she did a great job in the number three thing. So the first thing, and this was an excellent decision, one of the first things Secretary Blinken did, I think in March of 2021, because like 
you know how like there's like the presidential primary process and it takes forever? It takes like a year, like our presidential selection process takes 18 months. Becoming president of the ITU takes like 18 months and it's as stupid and as long and grueling as that. So Secretary Blinken announced in March of 2021, in September of 2022, our candidate's gonna be Doreen Bogdanhart. So you don't just like magically have somebody like you just pull out of thin air. You have to kind of develop that person. So, you know, one of the, you know, so we need to have, we need to be more clever and intentional about getting people like Doreen Bogdan Martins to go to these junior level posts at the FAO and the ITU and WIPO and the WHO. There's 130 of these things. And so because we, this woman had worked her way up the system, she was available. We need a thousand people like her. So go get res internships, learn a second or third language, be easy to work with. Please don't be like, you know, entitled and make coffee and don't get offended if I ask you to make coffee or make photo photocopies, please, right? Get along with other people. Work beyond five o'clock. I know there's like a little bit of a generational thing, like, but I think I'm like, I'm having like a little bit of a generational thing with some of the young people. They're like, oh, guys, people, like work beyond five o'clock and like, you know, come early, work hard, do your job. And I think you'll be fine. That's what I would say. Great. So if you want to come talk to me afterwards, I'll happily talk to you guys. So you have a lot of advice in your book for politicians yeah. in Washington. Um, you call for long-term planning and development commitments, yeah. prioritizing U.S. leadership in and through multinational yeah. organizations, so top-level government coordination, and doing the essential work of building relationships with private enterprise and with people building countries from the inside out. But U.S politics currently don't seem really well prepared. That's a to very diplomatic of way of putting that, Amy. I don't know what you're talking about. Especially the long term, you've talked yeah. about decade-long commitments to developing countries so that they know they can count on the United States. Um, how can we, the people in this room, help to influence and help our um, leaders understand the need to create that better environment? For those wise leadership practices. Okay, so Amy, that is a very polite and diplomatic way of. I've, I've gotten that question all eighty-two times. Oh, is that is that the hook? Oh my god. Okay, <laughs> is that the nonverbal cue? I'm getting. I have to, to learn to read the nonverbal cues. All right. Okay. So, so I think that um, it's the. I wrote this book because the world has changed. And we can't operate like it's, I'm, I'm old enough to remember 1995. It's not 1995 anymore. It's not 2005 anymore. And it's not 2015 anymore. And so I know that sounds like that's, why is Dan saying something that seems kind of stupid and banal? But I'm, I, what I'm saying is, if you leave a void, China and a little bit Vladimir Putin's Russia can fill voids that we leave behind. And so we, I think fear of China is a gateway drug to get our political system to focus and do the right thing, whether it's focus in the Americas 
or take a more constructive approach. So I wrote this book on purpose with a little bit of a focus on, on looking at through the lens of like these challenges through a lens of great power competition. And so I think that, I think, well, I would say a couple things. I would say that, you know, being a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council is a good step. Uh, I think the, the US Global Leadership Campaign has a chapter here. I think Pat, you're involved with that and Pat can tell you about that. But I think, um, you have a lot of, your Tennessee produces a lot of important legislators. Some of them may not be politicians you like. So maybe it's people you've never voted for, but they're important. I know Senator Haggerty really well. I worked with him many years ago. Um, you know, I think he's got good instincts and he's someone to engage. There's several members of Congress in the Republican delegation that have an increasing levels of influence and importance. They may not be your favorite politician. I'm not, I don't, I don't, you know, but these are people with a lot of influence. You guys have access to them. You should engage them. So they are your elected officials. Um, so I think these are people you should engage. Um, that's the second thing I would say. The third thing I would say is, um, I do think, uh, I'm not looking to, for attribution or people to quote me or say, well, Dan said this or Rundy said that. What I'm, the reason I keep doing these talks is I want you all to come away and like at least kind of play with some of the ideas in my book and in your head, and maybe it'll come out in some conversation somewhere. So I'm, I'm trying to like be a Johnny Appleseed of ideas. And so my message to you are like, we can't fight something with nothing. They can fill a void. We need to have, we need to understand that most of this competition is gonna be in the non-military sphere. And if we just say, you start with kind of a couple simple things, um, and I've had some progress on my 50th talk. I was doing a podcast and the guy, it was really difficult to schedule it. It was kind of annoying. And after a lot of effort, he said, yeah, I had somebody on my podcast the other day and the person was basically parroted everything you're talking about and didn't quote you. I was like, that's good. That's great. I don't want them to, I don't need to, I don't need credit. I just want people to like play with the ideas in my head that like what I've been pushing on. This week in foreign policy, the top picked article by the guy who's the ranking member of the China Select Committee, the headline was, we need soft power to combat China. Now, am I gonna take credit for that? I don't know. In Washington, everyone's supposed to say, oh yeah, that was my idea, that was for sure I did that, right? I don't know. But don't, can I take 20% of the credit? 30%, I don't know, probably. I had to buy a thousand copies of the book from the publisher. I hired an intern. I hand, had an intern hand deliver 80 copies to 80 staffers, Republicans and Democrats, and I handed another 30 to chiefs of staff. I sent, directed another 50 to think tank staffers and 100 to academics and 150 to former high level officials. I don't know, some of them read it. Now, if you're gonna get a free copy of the book from Parnassus, and thank you again, Parnassus, you gotta read the book, okay? That's my ask. If you come here and you're a young person, you have to read my book, if you get it for free, okay? Skim it, okay? Don't just read the index, please. And I have to say the phrase that and you read me. the book. I read the Did book. Did you I, like the book, Amy? I loved the book. That's a late loaded question, right? Underlines, <laughs> you see this? questions in it. Right? And the phrase that struck me that has been the earworm from this The earworm. Book. I'm trying to create earworms for you guys. You're welcome. 
Yeah. It's who do you want to set global standards? United do you States want to, China? Yeah, so there's only two choices. Either the Chinese Communist Party is going to set the rules of the global system. So right now, we're in a world where like fish in water, and so the global system's been largely set by the United States and the West. And it's, it's not perfect, and there's lots of problems, but anything you care about, climate change, some of the most deeply personal choices you make in your life, freedom of association, freedom of speech, things that you take for granted. Do, we, do any of you believe that the Chinese Communist Party would be a better steward than the United States and the West? I bet no one in here will tell me, oh yeah, the Chinese Communist Party would be a better steward. They're not, they're winning. Here's my last question for you, and then I'll add to this. How many of you know somebody in this room that's moving to Moscow next year? Anybody? Okay, how many of you know anyone that's moving to Beijing in the next 12 months? Oh, really? Okay, do we, okay. So why am I asking that? Because I think in the long run, I'd rather be us than them. Because in the global war for talent, we win. There's long lines outside of American consulates. And as long as there's long lines outside of American consulates, I think we're gonna be fine. So I'm a long, I'm a guarded optimist. We have lots of problems. If you just read the newspaper today, there's something going on crazy in Washington. We'll get through it. So that's all I got, thank you.